Okay, I'm at Eco Farm, and here is Moss Masamoto. Moss, you're kind of famous in this whole community. Yeah, you are. Yeah, no, you are. not at all. Not at all. One of the fun things about Eco Farm is that you come back and it's it's shifting and changing. Yeah. There's young people. There's new ideas. There's everything from uh, you know very progressive, wild organizing, organizing, and yet there's the business side of it too. That's great. That's yeah. how the whole organic world should be evolving. Yeah, I agree. You just go from one spot to another, and you mm-hmm. get excited about things you never thought you'd get excited about. <laughs> you were just in a session talking about real organic. Mm. Uh, did you have a chance to interact with that? Or is there some of it that you would like to have debate a little bit more? And It's, it's interesting. I enjoy knowing the backstory. Yeah. And, and not just what's present. And I know some of the backstory and I you know enjoy what they're doing. And, and I know because we've been farming organically for since the 80s, right. I could understand the progression of, you know, very small, different organizations. The USDA comes in. You know, California passed their organic law in, I think, 91. Right. And it was the first step. And you can see this, evo- you can say evolution, and we had another evolution, too. So real organic, is this, what kind of evolutionary step is that, too? And that's why I like seeing that progression, as opposed to it sit- sitting by itself, and you're supposed to either do thumbs up or thumbs down. No, it's all part of this narrative. And I love that dynamic. Well, Literally, so what's your absolutely. goal for being here for now? this next couple of days the main thing was just to connect because following the pandemic we lost face-to-face contact yeah and there's this wonderful idea that the way to find your course to happiness is relationships and conversations like we're having now that's the key and that's always the secret to our farming is you don't farm in isolation you farm with others around you well, and you know, uh, the one hope I have with all of this is that it kind of extends through even podcasting, too. Ah, that mm-hmm. we've got some people that are listening right now, and, and who knows, sometimes there's a lot, sometimes not so many, but there's somebody, and then they come back and say, hey, I always wanted to talk to Mas Masamoto, <laughs> and you brought him to me, and I'm here at Eco Farm. Well, and, and the fun thing about podcasts, and I listen to a ton out in the fields, mm-hmm. all right? So you can say I'm multitasking. No, it's a perfect companion to work out in the fields. Because it, it's both stimulating physically, mentally, intellectually, emotionally. And that's what you want. Well, d- d- be sure to put Farm to Table Talk on, the, <laughs> I on, that, on that list now. And then you can jump in every once in a while and we'll have you back. <laughs> and uh, I'm like you. I'm going to keep roaming around here and looking for inspiration. Very good. Very All right. Good. Thank Thanks, you. Moss. Thank you. <laughs> now, of course, I'm lost. Welcome to the Farm to Table Talk podcast where we talk about our food system, from what we eat to how it's grown. I'm your host, Roger Wasson. Jacob Katz. Hey, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Jacob, you really had people excited at EcoFarm. There are people that hadn't stopped to think much about rivers and waters and fish and you got them all stirred up but from the introduction it sounds like you've been stirred up yourself for quite a while explain to me today what's your organization what do you do now i work for california trout uh, which is a 50 year old nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to healthy rivers and robust populations of uh, of native fish and um I today work mostly in the Sacramento Valley, where I've been working with big ag, primarily rice growers, to show that if we reimagine 
the way that water flows across the landscape, we can have both our fish and our farms. Now, you're still trout, though, so you, but you, you, you worry about all fish, I guess. We do tend to worry about all fish, but salmon and trout, both very closely related, are our primary focus. So how does that how does that work? I mean, when you are concerned about the, about their well being, what is it? What are the behaviors or actions or policies that you promote or education that you get involved with? Well, let me put it this way: it, it you know, our native fish are in precipitous decline. I'm a fisheries biologist. That's what I studied uh, when I did my work where California has 132 different species of native fish. And uh, of those, well over 75% of them are on a a really precipitous trajectory towards extinction. And at first that was, you know, that took the wind out of my sails when we published that work as part of my PhD. But I began to understand that it also bespoke of a certain hope. And that was that it was the same portfolio was the same suite of actions that people had done largely inadvertently that was causing those declines and that many of them were possible to to at least lessen if not reverse so let me just to put it simply fish aren't an inevitable endangered fish populations aren't an inevitable consequence of human development Um, instead they're a direct consequence of a water infrastructure and water management that was put in place at a time when we knew little about how rivers actually functioned or gave much of a shit about the fish that lived in them. And now that we do, now that we have this 21st century ecological understanding, scientific understanding of how that system works, we find that we can integrate it into the water infrastructure that we've inherited and actually make it better make it safer place for people when it comes to big floods, make it a place where we're more able to deliver water during drought at the same time that we create a more functioning, better functioning uh, aquatic river ecosystem. Can you take that philosophy and go to any state in the union or maybe other countries as well and look at the water systems and look at the state of, of fish and have a similar perspective? Well, I don't know that you could do it just about anywhere, but I think the larger, you know, the, the overarching principles are the same, which is that integrating a working knowledge of nature into our management of it, whether it's starting to understand that letting Smokey the Bear put out every fire for 150 years really didn't make any sense. Because? Right? Because the flow of fire through forests is actually what sustains, maintains, creates a healthy forest. Yeah, yeah that makes right? sense. And Equally, the flow of floodwaters across large valleys is not only what makes healthy soils which grow our food, but it's also what spreads the water so that it can slow and sink in to recharge our aquifers, which are the really the the economic engine of California's economy is being able to pull water out of the ground when we need it, right? And it just so also turns out that when you mimic that river pattern of slowing and spreading water, of allowing it to interact with the landscape, you also rekindle this incredibly almost explosive engine of natural productivity. You actually have wetlands capable of creating the food resources necessary to rebuild fish and bird and wildlife populations. So if we turn the clock back um, 
I don't know, say 50 years. Was it a lot better 50 years ago than it is now? Because there's so many things people say that, you know, started getting worse 50-some years ago, you know, from carbon to obesity, you know, and all sorts of issues. That We might have had more fish 50 years ago, but many of the systems that are driving them extinct were really being perfected at that time. By mm. that I mean the uh, the ubiquitous levying and draining of our wetlands mm. was just starting to really – you know that was the, it was the pendulum had swung just about as far as it was going to towards command and control. So when I say was it better fifty years ago, we would have had more wetlands, but we were also in the in the throes of this orgiastic uh, control of nature. And now I'd say we're we're at a, at a much better place as far as our understanding of how people need to live with the landscape and incorporate natural pattern mimic natural pattern in our in our management of natural resources so in some ways it was better but i think in many ways we're better off now and that most of all i believe that you can't go back right it's it's impossible to move backward but you can look back you can have a better understanding of how our natural systems functioned before we interrupted them and then we can take those principles and approximate them in the way we manage. And that's true whether you're talking about fire flowing through forests or grazers moving across grasslands or water flowing across floodplains. In each one of those those domains, those resources, we have the ability to much more profitably and much better manage the landscape so that people really have a better quality of life at the same time that the environment is reinvigorated. So when you look at the natural system, then are you saying that levees often shouldn't be created or, you know, dams seldom or, you know, trying to contain the waters uh, as much as possible, you should just let it kind of let it go, let it have its Mm. natural state? I'm I'm not saying that. I, I don't think that passive equals natural. But I think when I look back, we see that the whole Central Valley was basically a mosaic of different kinds of wetlands. We will just say that water used to spread in slow, that there was a very shallow slope between open water and the land on the side, and that what people have done is really drain the valley, making steep-sided, highly levied river systems. And what that means is you've divorced the land from the water. And where the magic is is when water spreads and slows on the landscape. And so what we have the opportunity to do is to take the spirit of that understanding and weave it into the way we operate our infrastructure. And that means that, yes, levees do starve our river ecosystems. The food that makes fish, that makes robust populations of fish that then are actually needed if we're able to pass water from where it's more abundant in the north of the state to where it is used by people, in the middle and south of the state, all of that is dependent on having a functioning aquatic ecosystem. Because if it's failing and one or two endangered fish get sucked into the pumps that move, they shut the whole thing down. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars. What I'm saying is that we need not have those endangered fish populations. If we manage the system more effectively by approximating the way the landscape used to be, we could have a system that both created healthy, robust populations of fish, and therefore had the economic productivity of having access to more Mm. secure water supplies. Well, what would be an example of farmers? 
maybe a commodity or a, an area of farmers that you feel like they were really doing it right, and you interacted with them, you can see that you walked away from that and said, I'm proud to have been involved with them because there's this kind of progress taking place. I'm so proud to work in the Sacramento Valley. I mean, a place that I think is just so spectacularly productive from both an agriculture and an environmental perspective. And it's there where California's rice industry is based. Roughly half a million acres of rice are grown in the former wetlands of the Sacramento Valley. And it is the rice industry that over the last 35 years or so has really pioneered this landscape scale production of habitat value and benefit on working ag lands. What do I mean? I mean the same field that grows food for people in summer in fall is flooded to create wetland-like habitat that is fantastic to both feed and create a habitat refuge for migratory birds, for ducks and geese and shorebirds. That same field flooded a little bit deeper a little later into the winter can be ideal habitat for juvenile salmon and steelhead using those wetlands as productive nursery grounds. Um, that Those grounds can also be places where water spreads and slows and sinks back in to recharge our aquifers. So all of that benefit on top of benefit on top of benefit is possible when we kind of make this pivot towards understanding the natural processes which actually create and sustain the very values that we're after that we were trying to exploit uh, you, you know if you take a river that's healthy and, mm -hmm. a, and a river that's been managed well what's the fish population look like are they more of them are they bigger you know yeah. what is what's that picture well a lot of this work i got into it because i had the the great fortune um of working in alaska through my 20s my dad always said i couldn't I couldn't piss in the gutter without running a fly through it afterwards. Uh, I was pretty, I, I misspent my youth chasing fish everywhere I could and, and ended up in Alaska um, working as a guide. And what that did was allowed me to get out into the bush into places I could never have afforded to be otherwise and seen systems that hadn't been altered by human infrastructure and by human management and saw the incredible productivity that was possible. But I was a West Coast kid. I was a Northern California kid. And at the same time that I could see five species of salmon in the same waters and watch bears moving down and just biting just the head out of the salmon and to eat the brains because that's the highest calorie thing and then moving to the next fish. I mean, the incredible productivity of those systems. And yet I could still recognize Austin Creek in the lower Russian River. I could see the places that I was from and saw that there was there there wasn't that much difference. They were small tweaks. It was driveways that blocked flow and caused more more sediment to go down and, and, and clog the spawning gravels of streams. It was it was summer wells that dried up uh, pools. It was all these things that um, that seemed like a death of a thousand cuts in our in our watersheds here in California and yet seemed you know, like there was ways to mitigate, there was ways to make it better. And, and so that's what the, the optimism really came from was, was knowing that, that nature is so resilient and so productive and is, that's encapsulated so beautifully by a salmon, a single female salmon that 
that goes to the sea that 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 mines the amazing resources of the ocean and comes back big with a belly full of high grade fat filled eggs 5000 of which what does that mean that means that a river system that that fish can recognize that it, that that provides what a salmon needs at each one of its life stages can expect a a really rapid recovery of those fish if you give it a chance and that's what we see in a couple places where where we have sometimes inadvertently provided fish with what they need at each one of their life stages we see a really dramatic response fish going you know uh populations going from just several hundred returning to tens of thousands and i think we can do that for the sacramento as a whole if we can implement these same fairly straightforward recipes for recovery but do it at a landscape scale you know we've got people that they don't fish uh don't farm necessarily either right. but they eat and for some time now the the most popular diet has been a mediterranean diet is the one that's praised the most and when people really dive into that uh, salmon's an important part of it. You don't have to be just on the Mediterranean diet, but salmon's really an important part of it. If people go even further down that road, now I'm going to draw on your experience of being a fisherman in Alaska, lean towards getting uh, Alaskan line caught salmon mm-hmm. instead of farmed Atlantic salmon, which actually often comes from the Pacific. Yeah. Because they're farmed and it's more the variety, not the ocean that that names them. But is there something to that? Is that the well, fact very that- much? Yeah, very much so. I, I I think you'd find a similar analogy in maybe grass fed versus versus you know confined grain fed beef, um, because Atlantic salmon uh, aquaculture facilities, at least those that are in net pens in the ocean, are really confined animal lots, and where you have tens of thousands of pounds of 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 animal biomass in a small area mm-hmm. um really gnarly things happen right so mm-hmm. you have you have disease outbreaks you have high amounts of of food going in and waste coming out you have um the capacity for parasites to build up on those on those penned fish that aren't that healthy that are fed fed antibiotics and those parasites migrate into the wild stocks uh, you have pens that that break and and let these non-native fish out and disturbing uh, uh, native runs. So there's all kinds of interactions that all seem to be fairly detrimental. There are some movements towards much more sustainable aquaculture facilities, many of which are done instead of in the actual marine environment on land in circulating tanks, so that you can manage both the wastes the parasite issues, uh, uh, and the escape issues. So, Well, I think that helps some people that are trying to get a picture of two of what we're talking about, the end result. When they think of it in terms, they may already have a choice about whether or not they're getting grass-fed beef and they know how our pasture-raised products and and for some some very good reasons, uh, you know, decide that they prefer that. Yeah. And knowing that there is a difference. Now I've got to ask you, let's go back and connect this to the rivers. Sure. So uh, our healthy rivers that are producing more, bigger, healthy fish, and you've got the, the wetlands better established and so forth, how much impact can that have on what's available to consumers to actually purchase 
What a great question. And I think that the, the answer is it can have immense impact. And that really the goal of all my work is to put California fish back on California tables and to make the make the the act of eating that a, a political act of engaging in a ecosystem that is actually managed for the benefit of these wild things. So by having people that love to consume wild salmon produced in California's wild rivers, rivers that actually, by wild, I don't mean that they're untrammeled, that they're not managed, but that we're welcoming the wild back in, that we're repatterning the way we manage these rivers so that wild fish can recognize them, that the evolutionary keys that those fish honed over millennia of their ancestors uh, migrating into and out of those watersheds will once again fit the landscape's lock. We have, uh, we have altered the watersheds in such a way that those evolutionary keys currently don't fit. And that's what puts these populations on a trajectory towards extinction. And what we're, what we know now is that from minor tweaks to our infrastructure and our management, we can create rivers that still deliver the key benefits to people, flood protection that uh, allow uh, a more secure water supply, um, that can improve water recharge to aquifers, but at the same time rekindle this, this natural productivity. And that by eating that salmon, by having that come to market, that's what allows people in San Francisco or Fresno or L.A. to really interact and become an interested stakeholder, a an advocate for mm-hmm. uh, this pivot to process, this shift in how, Calo- as Californians, we we really live on the landscape and and manage the landscape in a way that that really benefits both people and and the environment. Jacob, I grew up in the Midwest, and we had. Uh, farm ponds, yeah, and and they were stocked, and you know, it, and when I was a little kid, I could take my fishing pole and and go down and almost always throw it out in the pond and and pull something in that I, you know, some fishing. Is what kind it, of impact did that have on you, Roger? Oh, I think it made me more philosophical. Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, I mean, it just, is a philosophical pursuit. The yeah, fishing. No, it, it, yeah. that was that was it. I mean, I think that uh, I also I also uh, did trapping. So when I was like twelve years old, I I did take a gun with me. I went mm-hmm. out and I had you know get like muskrats and stuff like that. Right. But then and the fishing. I don't know how young I was when I could take the pole and walk about a half mile to the pond by myself. And, and, you know, they say now the trouble that uh, we have with a lot of uh, young people, nobody can sit alone in the room, you know, yeah. for a couple hours. Well, the one thing about fishing, you know, you, you do sit around quite a bit and you just contemplate. You just kind of look into the little spools out there in the water and every once in a while you get a bite and, and it's... Uh, it's a meditative pursuit. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It is. No, you don't have to... There's so many benefits to being hip deep in a river or a pond or, or just the, the, the very act of engagement, whether you're a birder or a hiker, whether you kayak. Um, but to be out there and to be a keen observer of what's around you and yeah. to be not just an observer, to be part of it. I mean, the act of eating is such a primal and important one, too. And I think when when people see themselves as part of that food chain, part of the fabric of the landscape, only good things happen. 
So, so Jacob, you know what I'm thinking as we as we say this, and we'll wrap up in a, a, a little bit. But as I wrap up, I'm just thinking. I've been hearing people at EcoFarm talking about community gardens. Yeah. Talking about uh, food as medicine. Yeah. And and it seems like fish have fit into all this. Is there? Could there be a time that rather than just the garden at a school, they might have a lake or they may have a retreat or access to the river uh, so that, that kids can not only be growing vegetables but be engaged in fishing? Well, so much of the work we do, which is about giving the river room, which is about mimicking those historical patterns of flood where water had uh, greater interaction over longer times with the landscape, are also really important for flood control. A narrower river channel means it can't pass as much water, which means that there's more danger of it breaking over the levees. But what it also means is that when we do lay those levees back, we're creating outdoor access for many communities that don't have it otherwise. Yeah. And and I think that whether that's in underserved communities with within the Central Valley or you're talking about urban stream uh, 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 daylighting, streams that are under, you can only hear under the sidewalks now and bringing them back out and planting them and making them a focal point to a better standard of living in these places, but also rekindling that relationship with, with water mm-hmm. and landscape. So I think all of that stuff is is super important. And I find that many of, you know, that I'm motivated by my stomach often. <laughs> um, and that if I can eat the fruit of that landscape, I, 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 I can't tell you exactly what it is, but it makes me feel like I belong. So what about a community garden type thing, except for like a community lake or a community access to the I, I think that that's a really good idea. I, I think that, um, you know, I work for an organization that tries to get kids fishing as often as possible, mm-hmm. uh, that we try to and advocate for making access to rivers and fishing, especially close to urban areas, something that uh, is uh, a real focal point of public policy. Um, I think that you know, it's not. I, I wouldn't advocate for aquaculture in the same way that we have agriculture in our in our schools. All, you know, as a as a, for a protein source, um, I would say that there's we have a program called uh, uh, Salmon in the Classroom that uh, really? that brings uh, salmon eggs into an aquarium within the classroom and sets it up. And uh, my colleagues will go in and explain that to third, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, and they get to watch as those eggs mature, as the eye uh, starts to form, and you can see the heart beating, tail breaks out, and watch those yeah, yeah, those yeah. eggs turn to, to fry, is what, what, what the, the baby salmon are called, and then they'll take those fry and take them out and release them in a local stream. So there's, there's a lot of different ways to do this. I would want to close maybe on this project that I've been part of for the last 10, 10 years or so, which we call the Nigiri Project. And Nigiri, as you may know, is the, the wedge of rice on which a piece of sushi is placed. Mm-hmm. And so working with rice farmers in the Sacramento Valley, we put forward the idea that their fields that used to be wetlands could be managed as wetlands again. And that if salmon were put out into those fields that were flooded after the rice was harvested in late fall, that the salmon might recognize those wetland-like habitats as something similar to the places where they'd 
evolved, to which they're adapted. And what we found when we put baby salmon into those fields was that they not only survived, but they thrived. They, they grew, they grew tremendously. We called them floodplain fatties because they were doubling their weight every week. And in that way, I think we do have this, this idea, just bringing, circling back in. We called it the Nigiri Project because it was fish over rice. It was, it was a landscape that we were managing for multiple benefits. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And, and that I dream of the day when we're actually at scale and we can know that the salmon that we're catching had reared on those same fields and we can, you know, cook up some of the best rice anywhere and lay a slab of that fish on it and and have a truly california meal boy that sounds exciting i've got one other question i've got okay. to, to wrap up i also got to make an aside though first because when right. i was talking about going back and doing the ponds and yeah and, and fishing the other part of that yeah is that that's when you could walk out into any cornfield and put a spade in and get a bunch of earthworms, and that's all I use to bait. Right. And uh, it's harder to find those earthworms today. So it, that's another podcast. But uh, but this this whole system, this whole food system, and um, it closes a loop. I'm going to have to work on this idea of pulling in earthworms. And <laughs> so it's it's out there. You can cast about for a. Ah, there we go. Now, final question I've got for you. And um, and that is, so there's some people listening to this saying, well, I really should be eating more fish. And you're telling me the kind of fish I should look for and where it might come from and, and the, the great stories of what we're doing, what can be done with them. But for somebody that just is afraid of making salmon at, at home and isn't, Never really does it. They just go to a restaurant sometimes and they'll order salmon. They think it tastes good, but they don't know what to what to do with it. I mean, uh, what do you tell people that's well, easy? The easiest, I mean, all you really need is a little olive oil and salt. If you have a lemon, fantastic. Um, but take that beautiful fillet of salmon that you got from the butcher, skin, line caught on wild, side, usually, skin right? on one side, leave the skin on that side, cube it into uh, one and a half to two inch wide cubes so that it it sits on that skin side really well but there's a bunch of surface area cover it in olive oil salt it well put it on put a put a a cast iron or a you know cookie sheet into the oven 350 up to four and a quarter get it really nice and hot yeah lay those cubes on there so they start to sizzle put them into the oven um i would actually you know, make sure it's at least four and a quarter, even four fifty. Um, and what you want is to just peek in there, and when those cubes start to brown around the edges, pull it back out. It'll be juicy and moist in the middle still, but it'll be crispy on the outside. The I eat the skin; you don't have to, but that is absolutely delicious. And the the key is is having that that hot oven to make sure that you get a little, you know, get a little brown crisp on the outside and yet preserve that savory middle. What what about a grill? What if you're outside on the grill? Outside on the grill, I would I would say something similar, definitely cook skin side down. What you don't want to do is put it onto, you know, a big slab of fish onto a grill and uh and, you know, 
let it be a mushy mess. That, that, that's, that's the real issue. So I, I really like to have a real hot grill. Um, I again would do the pieces of salmon relatively small, um, mm-hmm. so that you get a higher surface area to volume there. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's a winner every time. Well, okay. And, and this really is a final question. How do people find out about your programs? Uh, where do you want to send them to look for, for more information or be in contact uh, with, with your folks? Uh, California Trout uh, uh, at caltrout.org uh, is a website, which you can um, get all this information. But if you look up uh, uh, the Nigiri Project, N-I-G-I-R-I, um, or you just Google my name, Jacob Katz and Fish, uh, you'll come across uh, dozens of articles about the work that we've been doing, and uh, you can you can go down any of those wormholes. Yeah, I tell you, uh, Jacob, you're an inspiration, and I appreciate your being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 